to First uh, Timothy chapter two. First Timothy chapter number two, and I want to continue as we've been looking a little bit verse by verse into First Timothy, examining some of the things that are in this particular book. But I want to start in on chapter two, and we want to look at these prayers that Paul tells us that we should pray. And then he even gives us reasons that we should pray these prayers. I'm convinced that the average Christian doesn't pray like this. But nevertheless, it's still in the book. And we need to know what what the book says. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of things be made for all men for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. I want you to notice in verse 1 where he's offering these encouraging words. When he says, first of all, we should use supplication, that's basically a form of request or plea, but it's done with a lot of almost like begging, but but certainly with a lot of fervency and passion. A prayer, all it is, is a request. We told you that if you have to pray, it's because you're asking God to do for you what you're incapable of doing for yourself. If you can do it, then there's no need to pray about it. You that are able to get into your car, start it up, and drive away, you're not going to sit down behind the steering wheel and pray that your car starts unless you have a car that's giving you trouble. Then you'll pray. And when you get home, you're probably not going to pray that the Lord give you strength to swing your legs out of the bed tomorrow morning unless you're having physical problems. So a prayer is any kind of request that asks for divine intervention in your particular life. If God gets involved, then it's supernatural. And all of us should pray because we're told to pray. Intercession has to do with someone praying on behalf of someone else. If, if I make intercession for you, I'm praying for you at home. I'm praying for you here at the church. I'm praying for you as I'm driving. I'm interceding for you because, A, you may not be praying for yourself. B, you may not be interested in God. C, you may be incapacitated in the sense that you're unconscious. But intercession has to do with you stepping into the breach and interceding for someone else. So parents will pray for their kids. That's an assessment, especially if you have kids that are lost. Or if you have kids that are Christian, but they don't pray like they should. When he says in verse 1, then, there should be a giving of thanks, all of us should have a, a an attitude, as we say, of gratitude, because we're thankful that God does answer prayer, and we're grateful for all the things that God has done for us, And he says we're encouraged to do all of this for all men. And that's not just talking about the male gender. That's everybody. You should pray for all people. 
Sometimes people will say, well, you know, Pastor, when I get into a time of prayer, if I get up in the morning and start praying or I'm in a prayer meeting, sometimes I run out of things to say. How can you run out of things to say if in your prayer you're praying for everybody you know? You're praying for all the missionaries you know. If you're praying for everybody that's in fellowship with you. There should never be a time where you have to sit there trying to think of things to pray for and people to pray for. Again, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of things be made for all men. It doesn't say for all good men. It doesn't say for all bad men. It just says for everybody. So you don't get to choose who is worthy of your prayer. If they're breathing, they're worthy of your prayer. And you should take the time to pray for them. I would dare say that some of us, if not all of us in here this evening, are the product of someone else's prayers. That people were praying for us even when we weren't even thinking about God or weren't concerned about praying for ourselves. When you were born, there probably was somebody praying for you when you came into this world. It could be they prayed for you because of the circumstances into which you were born. Maybe you didn't have believing parents. And there was a neighbor that said, so-and-so has just been born. Let's say a prayer for that infant. The father you would lead, guide, touch, direct the steps of that particular child. And when we pray like that, we should expect that God will answer our prayer. If you believe that, say amen. It's true. So all of us in here are the product of, of someone's prayer. But then Paul amplifies his statement, and he takes it even further. And listen to what he says. These are the people you should pray for. Kings, people that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. So in ancient times, they didn't have presidents. They had kings. They had rulers, monarchs. It was hereditary. It came from a father to a son or a queen to the daughter. And it was one of those deals where the strong conquered the weak. And when the strong conquered the weak, they subjugated them, oftentimes putting people to death. So ancient Greek kings, ancient Roman kings were very brutal in their handling of competitors to the throne. Very difficult. And since there was no democracy and you couldn't say that there was any kind of uh, representation of all different groups of people, then quite naturally you'd probably grow bitter towards the kind of people that were ruling over you. In ancient Greece, they had a form of democracy, but only the men were allowed to vote. In Rome, they had a form of representation for the people, but for the most part, the wealthier classes who had the money to run for office were the ones elected to office, very similar to what we have now. I, I think for most state legislature races, you have to be able to spend probably at least a quarter of a million dollars. If that's not just in advertising, you're certainly going to have to have that just to travel around and do what you need to do to run for a Senate race, that's going to be a million or more. And look at what it costs to run for presidency. I think back when uh, Trump and Hillary were going at it, I think she spent close to a billion dollars. 
And he didn't spend anywhere near that. He just, in, in his wisdom, just said every kind of thing that would, you know, get him on the, the uh, television. And all the broadcasters had him on TV sucking all the oxygen out of the room. And he probably didn't spend a fraction of what she did. He was a wiser man. And he ended up, ended up in the presidency. Okay, so the Bible says pray for kings. Well, pastor, what if I have a president I don't like? Pray for him. Yeah, pray for him. What if I have a governor I don't like? Pray for the governor. Pray for the mayor. If, if you don't, then you will spend the bulk of your time complaining about them. And, and we're all expert complainers. And we, we have a master's degree in murmuring. And we know how to, you know, let people know how unhappy we are with what is currently going on with the leaders of our nation. But the scripture says we should pray for them and for people in authority. The people over you in your job, people in leadership in the church, people in leadership in the community, our school board officials, people that are uh, working for the city, that are on the board there. All of this requires prayer so we can lead a quiet and peaceable life. If I take the time to pray for you as someone in authority, my prayers for you will keep me from becoming bitter against you. You understand that? When you pray for someone, as Jesus said, pray for your enemies, for those that despitefully use you, bless them. That preserves you from becoming an angry, bitter person by taking the time to pray. And I think we need more Christians that would pray for our uh, current president. Now, being a former Marine, I, I can say I haven't always agreed with, certainly wasn't pleased with, the presidents that we have had during my adult years, but they're still the president of the United States, and they're still my president. I'm a United States citizen. I'm not one of these guys that just reject people. Here's the here's the bottom line. If if I'm overseas in a foreign country and I'm sitting at a table with someone in England or someone in Egypt or somewhere, and they go to talking about America and go to talking about our politics, wherever I am, I'm defending our nation. I'm not letting anybody run down the red, white, and blue. But I do say that knowing that I take the time to pray for our president, our current president, the president before him, the president before him, the president before him. And in this church, I have often led you in prayers for president, whether it's Republican or a Democrat. And the reason for that is because I want to be able to lead a quiet and peaceable life. I can have quietness in my heart if I'm not bitter. And I can live a peaceable life if, if I'm praying for people. God may help me to understand the paganism of our current administration if I pray for it. He'll help me to understand why they think the way they think, why their belief system is that way. And in understanding them, I can pray for them and say, Lord, save each one of them. Save their family members. Save the chaplains in the Senate and in the House. Lord, save the ones that are working as pages and as secretaries in these offices. Very important. 
So a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty is something all of us should desire. To be like God should be our objective. Now, you know as well as I do, God's not pleased with everything he sees taking place on this planet. But do you think the sins of man change his character? No, no, not at all. And I don't think our character should change just because people do things that are dishonest. When uh, a year and a half ago when folks were running around this nation burning things to the ground and people were on television saying, oh, you've got to give them space to vent their anger. The people who were saying that were people whose businesses weren't being burned out. These were the people who just basically said, let, let them burn down everybody else's stuff, but stay away from where we are. But when people started going into the uh, neighborhood of the mayor of Portland, and then they started marching outside of her house and up and down her street, then everything all of a sudden changed. Now we've got to get police presence and all of that. But the church still should pray. We should pray. It is not our role to be violent, but to pray for those that are in authority. And because we have the opportunity in the nation to vote, we should do that. Here's what God says in verse 3. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. If it's good and acceptable, we should do it. Look at verse 4. Who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. There is no one you can think of that God doesn't want to become a Christian. Even the people you despise the most on planet Earth, God wants to see them saved. You do believe that, right? When, so remember that tomorrow morning or later on tonight when you flip on the dial on your television and you see Pelosi there. God wants to save her too. Yeah. And remember that when you flip the dial and you turn to another channel, then you see Liz Cheney there. Or if you flip the dial and you see Trump there. Whoever it is that you see, remember God wants all of these people to be saved. So we pray for them because we want them to have the benefit of knowing who Jesus Christ is. And if this is God's will, then we're here to help God accomplish his will in the earth. Part of the Lord's Prayer goes like this. Thy will be done on earth as it is where? In heaven. How does God get his will accomplished here on planet earth? Through the church. Now he can work supernaturally even through sinners like he did with ancient Cyrus the king. And he can do some things behind the scenes that we don't even really know about. But as far as the church, our desire should be to have the mind of God to fulfill the desires of God so that his will can be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's going on in heaven? Well, in heaven, you don't have violence. You don't have rape. You don't have theft. You don't have lying. You don't have any of that stuff. So in the kingdom of God, the church should be a manifestation of that. The church, the fellowship of believers should be a place where the kingdom of God is in full manifestation. Paul said it this way, provide things honest in the sight of all people. I shouldn't lie to you. 
You shouldn't lie to me. I shouldn't gossip and slander your name and try to destroy your reputation. That's the kingdom of God in manifestation. So verse 4, he wants everybody to be saved, saved from their sins and come to the knowledge of the truth. So in Paul's mind, in writing this inspired letter to his spiritual son, there is something called truth. Now for some people that's debatable today. Because they'll say what's true for you may not be true for me. And there are many types of truths. So it's, it's all relative. The, the Muslims have a truth. The Mormons have a truth. The Buddhists have a truth. Not so. According to Paul, the Lord would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. What particular truth? Verse number 5. There is one God. One mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So there aren't five gods. There aren't 20 gods. The ancient Greeks and Romans believed in a plethora of gods. Jupiter for the Romans. Zeus for the Greeks. Apollo for the Greeks. Mercury for the Romans. They had all kinds of gods. Poseidon, the god of the water. All kinds of different gods. The Hindus have over a million gods. Some of them say they don't even know how many gods they serve in Hinduism. Think about that. But yet Paul is very clear we have one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, the triune Godhead manifested in Scripture, and then he speaks of the mediator, Jesus Christ. Why is he called a mediator? Because he acted as a go-between us and God. What's a mediator? A mediator is someone who tries to handle hostilities. He's the person who tries to get in the midst of an argument and, and tries to settle a dispute. If you've ever had to deal with legal counsel, have to go through mediation, then you know you'll oftentimes have one group over here in the room, then another group over here in the room, and then the mediator's just going to walk back and forth and talk to everybody and try to figure out what they want, what's going to work with them. Then he's going to walk over here into this room and talk with them, say this is what they want, what are you interested in, and then he's going to go back and forth trying to settle a dispute. Well, Jesus comes along, and because there's this wide chasm between man and God, this chasm formed by sin, Jesus came into this world in order to be able to help us bridge that gulf. And Jesus, he comes, he dies on the cross, and having died on the cross and shed his blood, he made it possible for a peace treaty to be signed. And anybody who believes in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ can enter into a new covenant with God and be adopted as his child. And as the Bible says, we're no longer children of wrath. So as a Christian, God is not angry with me as he would be with a sinner. Now, I can do things that grieve the Holy Spirit. I can do things that displease the Lord. But God's big enough to handle me. He has something called conviction. The convicting power of the Holy Spirit, and when that Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, he puts his finger 
on things that need to be dealt with. That's what, that's what God does. So if the Lord were to put his finger on something in my life, it wouldn't matter what direction I turned. It wouldn't matter where on earth I went. I could be in a submarine in the depths of the ocean or in an airplane a mile above in the sky. His finger would be wherever I am until I deal with that by the blood. And you know how annoying it can be if you're trying to get away from someone and they just kind of follow you around and just constantly in your face the whole time? And you're trying to have a conversation or go here and there, and then everywhere you go, they're right there because they want you to know their presence. And that's exactly how God is. God is not going to let you get away from him. So, of course, when, when, when Tiffany and I would have arguments in our earlier years of marriage, I shouldn't have said argument. I should have said intense moment of fellowship. When, when we would have intense moments of fellowship, then, then if, if, if I tried to leave the room to go somewhere just to go cool off, then that's where she'd be, right there in my face. Didn't matter where I went. I just, she, she's going to be right there. And then finally she's going to say, I will be heard. See? Now knowing that is, I will be heard. But, but think about it. Isn't that just like God? You're trying to get away from God. He's dealing with your heart. He's talking to you about this. He's talking to you about that. And you're trying to get anywhere you can get away from the presence of God like Jonah did. And then you can't, get, you can't escape the presence of the king. The mediator is trying to balance all of this out so that things can be properly reconciled. When Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, there's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's telling us that Jesus' ministry is unique and it is distinct. Any God, so-called God, that doesn't have a son named Jesus that died on the cross and was raised from the dead and then went to heaven one day coming back is not a true God that we should serve not. And most religions don't believe God has a son. So the Muslims don't accept the sonship of Jesus Christ. Paul was Jewish, but his own brethren denied the sonship of Jesus Christ. If you talk to someone who is part of the Japanese religion, Shintoism, or involved with witchcraft, or some other kind of animism like they have in Africa where they worship rocks and trees and hills. Those guys don't have a son named Jesus. So Paul is singular here, and he makes it very plain. I want you to know that Christianity is the only faith that's true. Now somebody will say, well, that's a bit narrow-minded. Well, I didn't write the Bible, neither did you. This was in the book before you were born. It'll be in the book after I'm dead. There's one God, one mediator between God and man. Verse 6, he gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. When do people normally give a ransom? When they're want, wanting something in exchange for that ransom. 
Typically, it's money in today's society. But Jesus gave himself as a ransom in order to secure our redemption out of sin from darkness into the kingdom of the dear son. He paid the price for you to have the liberty and freedom that you have. Now, if you were kidnapped and somebody said, okay, uh, Pastor Darrell, I just want you to know that uh, presently we are holding your uh, treasurer, your church treasurer, we're holding him captive. And the ransom is going to be a half million dollars. Are you going to secure the ransom in order for your church treasurer to be delivered? Well, I think I'd pray for God. I'd say a prayer, ask God to do a miracle, and, and then we'd see what, what would happen out of that. However, if, if someone put up the money, someone with a lot more money than I have, so if, let's suppose, Barry put up the money for God's ransom, if the ransom was paid to the captor, wouldn't it be crazy for the money to be transferred and then when his release has been secured, he decides he wants to stay with the captors? That'd be weird. Well, think about it. Jesus came and gave himself as a ransom in order to secure the redemption of people out of sin, and multitudes of people still have not left their captor. They've stayed with the devil and have not walked out of the prison of sin and darkness in order to enjoy the relationship they have with the one that secured their redemption. Our Heavenly Father has made sure all of us can be free. He has. So verse, verse 7, Paul says, I am ordained a preacher. Now that, that word ordained meaning appointed. Now we use that word today to describe someone who's in ministry. So I'm an ordained minister. That means that I, I have had people who believed in me, who interviewed me, and then gave me papers that say I can go out and preach the gospel and do ministry. Well, there are a lot of people who don't necessarily have that and didn't come the same path that I went. Some preachers are what they call bootleg preachers. They just kind of get out and go, go to start preaching on their own. And nothing wrong with that. Paul did that in the Bible. He got saved, then started preaching immediately. Some preachers also will go through a select number of classes, certain denominations, and they require Bible classes in order to get their license or in order to be ordained. No problem with that. I've certainly done my share of those too. But you do realize that today there are some people who just get online and pay $15 and get a piece of paper set there all day. Yeah. There are a whole lot of people that do that. I've met plenty of people that do that. But but that, that little piece of paper isn't worth the, the money that's given or to, to print it. See? If, if a person is going to be called and appointed by God, 
then God has to be the one that confirms their ministry. And that's exactly what it is, a ministry. Paul says, I am ordained a preacher. Yes, it's more than just a piece of paper. Like talking to people about marriage, they say, well, why should I get married? All it is is a piece of paper. It's more than a piece of paper. It's a symbol or an emblem of a covenant. It's a guy and a gal saying to one another in front of witnesses, we have promised that we're going to walk through high waters and fires and difficulty in order to stay together. It's the acknowledgement publicly that we believe God has favored our union and we are expecting God to continue to bless us in that union. It's more than a piece of paper. Yeah. And so Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ, I'm not lying to you, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. So then a, a preacher... That just simply means someone making an announcement or proclaiming something. A teacher is one offering explanation, likely with greater detail. Gentiles is simply an English word that describes non-Jewish people of any ethnicity. Doesn't matter where they are on planet Earth. If they were not born to a Jewish mother, they're Gentile. We'll look at verse 8. He says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And when he says men, he's talking about ladies also. But you can see the emphasis again, return into prayer. And he shows you in verse 8, you can pray anywhere, in a tree, in a cave, in a wilderness, in a jungle, in a plain, in a wagon, in a church, in your car, in a bedroom, in a hospital. You can pray anywhere. And when he says lifting up holy hands, in, in ancient times, let's not forget that in the Old Testament talks about with the reading of the word, the children of Israel lifted their hands unto God and blessed him. There's nothing wrong with people lifting their hands. I think it says in the Old Testament, we lift our hearts with our hands. That's why we lift our hands in worship. We, we, we don't do that because we don't have anything else to do. And we're not trying to flag people down in worship to get anybody's attention. We're lifting our hands to God because we want God to know our life is completely, wholly surrendered to you. That's what that means. Yeah. And when he says without wrath and doubting, of course, that means if you're going to take the time to pray, don't pray in anger and don't pray in unbelief. It's a waste of your time, certainly a waste of God's time, for you to just go through the ritual of prayer and you don't believe anything that's taking place. Now, there are a lot of preachers that do that. And there are plenty of services you can go to. I'm sure you can go to a, uh, a Greek Orthodox, Roman Catholic, probably even some Pentecostal churches, where a preacher will get up and say prayers and not believe a thing he's saying. Not believe anything, but just go through it because it's at this point of the service we're supposed to do this. So somebody will walk back and forth, they'll be swinging some incense, and they'll be saying something in Latin or something in Greek, but they don't believe anything that they're saying. Nevertheless, they're going through the whole ritual of it. That happens all the time. But as Christians, if you're going to take the time to pray, 
believe that God's going to answer. Yeah. This, this is not just an exercise in speech. This is saying, God, help. I need some help, Lord. Please bless these kids. Turn these wayward hearts toward truth. And then believe when you pray those prayers that God behind the scenes is going to do it. How he's going to do it, I don't know. He can get some angels busy. He can use other relatives, other friends. He can change the life of an enemy of who you're praying for. And then the enemy's life being born again can come into the life of the one you're praying for, and that becomes a trophy of grace, and that life can be changed also. So we're talking about praying for people, then he changes the subject, and he said, let's have a conversation about ladies. And in accordance with what he said in verse 8, about holy hands, that's the adjective that describes the hands, he says, likewise, in verse 9, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. So now he's talking about not only personal character, but personal appearance. And, and, and these are verses here that are uh, very often times used to, um, how do we want to say it, uh, keep ladies in the second class position, very often. So because he says here, he talks about broided hair, that's braided hair. If you're not careful and you try to take these things literally, then you might think that if a lady braids her hair, it's a sin. Or you might think that if a lady wears gold or pearls, it's a sin. Or costly array. Now, who, who is it that determines what's costly? Here's, here's one lady that likes to shop at Salvation Army, Goodwill. Then there's somebody else that steps up her game a little bit and she goes to Walmart. Then there's somebody else that she even takes it a little bit further. Then she heads the Dillard's. Then there's somebody else that goes even further than that. And before you know it, she's at, you know, Von Maher in Lincoln. And before you know it, somebody goes even higher, and there it's Saks Fifth Avenue or Tiffany's. Who is it that determines what's costly or rent? I can tell you what's costly. Anything out of your budget is costly. Anything out of your budget. But you don't have to feel ashamed or feel bad about wanting your wife or being a woman and looking nice. The whole idea is for us to have a character that is humble and modest. Now I'm going to show you how we can take this too far. Let's go to First Peter and... 1 Peter chapter 3, that's just a couple of pages over. But in 1 Peter 3, I'm going to read a couple of words to you. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation or lifestyle of the wives. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. 1 Peter 3 and 3, whose adorning, let it not be the outward adorning of the plating of hair or the wearing of apparel or the wearing of gold. So according to verse 3 then, 
a, a lady shouldn't put barrettes in her hair. She shouldn't wear gold, and she shouldn't put on clothing. Wouldn't we all look crazy if we came in here tonight nude? Yeah. I, I can assure you that that would not be the the answer. So you can take something literally and miss everything that the man is saying. In verse 4, he says, Let it be the hidden man of the heart which is not corruptible. All those other things are corruptible. Gold, putting your hair up, wearing gold. Gold is corruptible. He said, But a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God, a great price. And then in verse 5, he said, This is how the old women adorned themselves. This is why we think and believe, according to the Scripture, God is after modesty. God's not trying to make sure that you, you dress like you've come from Noah's Ark. No. He just simply wants modest apparel. There are plenty of denominations in the South, even to this day, that won't let a woman wear a pair of pants. I have friends in ministry that preach the gospel that won't put a wedding ring on. Because they honestly believe that jewelry is something that is sinful. But in this world that we live in right now, if you're a guy or a girl, you better put a ring on your finger and let people know you belong to somebody. Yeah. And then at the same time, there are people who don't want ladies to put on any kind of makeup. As if Jezebel was the only one in the Old Testament to ever put on makeup or ever put on an earring or something like that. These things have nothing to do with living holy or living godly. In fact, and I've told you this a thousand times, that, that plenty of the, the, many of the people who complain about our ladies wearing makeup could stand to put some on themselves. Yeah, would, would be helpful. Just low foundation would be, be helpful. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. I'm not going to argue and fight with anybody about that. But in ancient times, they didn't have blue jeans. How can you say that that's something that pertains to men? They didn't have blue jeans in ancient Greece and ancient Rome. But verses like these, 1 Timothy, 1 Peter, were used to keep women from being anywhere attractive. Now, the, the other side of that, I travel and go to different churches and preach and then they'll get up there for the praise and worship service. So there might be a few hundred people out there, maybe more out there. And the, the, the praise people come out there and say, all right, folks, we want, we're going to go into worship now. We're going to lead you into the presence of God. So here comes a, a, a young man out there, probably 25 or 26, and he's got skinny jeans on. Skinniest things you've ever seen in your life. And then he's got, he's got a shirt on that's probably nine times too small for him because he wants everybody to see every muscle that he has in his body. And then next to him on either side probably going to be all of this eye candy. There's going to be these ladies who are going to be up there on the, on the platform getting ready to lead praise and worship. They're going to be in yoga pants. And, and she's going to have a, halt, a halter top on, and you're going to see her midriff, and then she's going to have cleavage here across the top, and she's in everything that's going to represent her female form, 
And when they start the praise and worship, they'll say, we, we don't want you to have your eyes on us. Get your eyes off of us and get them on God. Now, you know that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen at all. Because here is some young man and some young woman that is uh, amply endowed, and they're up there leading people in praise and worship. Most of them folks are not up there thinking about God. They're wanting to attract people to their physical form. And the people that are out there have no choice because it's now up there in front of them. And it's for this reason that churches years ago, some of them starting to do it again, started buying robes for their people just to have modesty. Or giving people an idea of a uniform of what they ought to wear. So the whole point of what I'm saying in all of this is what Paul is after is modesty. Modesty, that's important. And you know as well as I do, there's not a lot of that in our culture today. Uh, Our culture really, it it magnifies and amplifies the physical so that people will be attracted to it. So in verse 9 and 10, he says that, People should be professing godliness and at the same time have good works. Now the final few verses there. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. Now I'm going to put the emphasis on the verb, learn. Because in ancient times the average lady was not educated. They were not even allowed to go to school. The men that typically were educated. But when it says learn in silence, it just means in quietness. That's all that means, in quietness. And the reason he's dealing with this, let's remember, Timothy was left in Ephesus. The goddess of Ephesus, according to Acts chapter 19, was a goddess named Diana. They had a riot in that area. And as with any religion, people tend to take on the character of the God they worship. We're called Christian because of our relationship with Jesus. In ancient times, people who were involved with the goddess Diana had to deal with a strongly feminist spirit that was in that area. Well... They made statues and everything else, and even some of the men were unhappy with how many people Paul was leading to Christ because they said our bottom line, as far as the money, was going to suffer if we don't stop this man from preaching. It's an offense to Diana. So Paul says here in verse 12, I don't suffer a woman to teach. Now, he didn't say what subject he didn't suffer them to teach because None of these verses here have anything to do with a church service. There's nothing in this about a church service. In fact, I made a few notes here that I just want to read, and then I'll come back to some of this. It says there in verse 12, two things. He wouldn't suffer a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over a man, but to be in quietness or to be in silence. So according to him, in this verse, if you read that and just stopped there and didn't read anything else, you would think that all a woman could do is be quiet, not talk. Now, there are a lot of churches like that, Presbyterian churches. 
Lutheran churches, Reformed Baptist churches. They, they let the, the only thing they let the women do in those churches for the most part is clean the church and cook chicken at the potluck. But if there's a business meeting, she can't open her mouth, she can't raise her hand, she can't say anything, she can't serve as a deaconess as Paul had Phoebe serve as a deaconess in the book of Romans. She can't do that at all. However, if she has a job and she pays tithes, they will collect that money from her. They'll receive her money. So here, here's some notes that I, I put together here just on some of this. Okay, so two distinct issues here are noted down, teaching and exercising authority. The men who would say to you that they would never listen to a woman teach the Bible. See, it doesn't say he doesn't suffer a woman to teach the Bible. It just says he doesn't suffer a woman to teach at all. The people who would say they wouldn't listen to a woman teach the Bible do not have a problem at all having a woman that's a boss on their job at the post office or in the military or working for the city. And the reason for that is because there's money involved. And if, and if, and if, if in order for me to, to get a paycheck, if it means I've got to suffer a woman being my boss, then I have to just put up with that. Well, no, if you, if you honestly believe that God doesn't want a woman to do anything, say anything, then why don't you be consistent with what you believe? Don't vote for him to Congress. Don't vote for him to, to be a state legislature. Don't vote for him to go into the Senate. Don't put them in any kind of position or volunteer to put them in any, any kind of position where they have some authority. You obviously know I'm not in agreement with that. But when Paul says teach, he doesn't say when, where, at all. As I said, none of this has anything to do with church services. But he uses the situation of Adam and Eve to explain his argument. And that's what we need to know. So Adam was made by God. And then Adam, formed from the dust of the ground, lay there until the Lord breathed into him. And then the Lord created a rib, and from that rib he made woman. He put both of them in the garden, gave the two of them dominion. Both of them had dominion. And when Eve sinned, she gave the fruit to her husband. God came to Adam and said, what happened? He said, in all of the wisdom that he had, it's that woman you gave me. And that woman, in all the wisdom that she had, she pointed at her husband and said, The devil beguiled me. No, I pointed at the serpent. said, The serpent beguiled me. Okay. Now, her introducing the fruit to Adam didn't change the equality of their positions in the garden. What changed their positions in the garden was the sin. They could have eaten of any tree. She could have gave him anything to eat. That wouldn't have caused any problem at all. But the moment she transgressed the commandment of God, that is when the trouble came. And when the Lord came to her, this is what he said to her. Your desire will be for your husband. Your husband will rule over you, and I will multiply your sorrows and pains in childbearing. And he said to, to, eat, to uh, Adam... As you till the land by the sweat of your brow, I'm going to multiply your sorrows. So where we had equality in the garden before the sin, because of sin now, it's tilted 
and man has become the head. That's what has happened. But before, they had equality. They had dominion. And even though Eve is the one that sinned, as Paul says it here at the end of, uh, of uh, chapter 2, verse 14, you remember the Bible doesn't say because of one woman's sin, many were made sinners. It said because of one man's sin. Adam bore the brunt of responsibility because of what happened there in that garden. Eve was beguiled. The Lord said he's going to multiply sorrow and conception. Verse 15 of 1 Timothy 2 says she'll be saved in childbearing. Do you know how many people there are today in this state that honestly believe the more children you have, the better favor you have with God? Yeah. There are plenty of people in Christian groups. They have 13 and 14 kids because that's what they think. And as long as Tiffany and I have been here, I have met men who were raised in the Catholic faith, who were raised in all Catholic towns, who told me their families were large because their mothers believed they had to have a whole lot of kids in order for God to be pleased with them. Because of 1 Timothy 2.15. That is not what that's talking about. When the Lord said to Eve that uh, he's going to multiply sorrows and pains in childbearing, and if they continue in faith and charity and holiness and sobriety, they'll be saved. He was not saying they'll be saved from their sins by having a whole lot of kids. Now, you've got to know that's true. There's nothing in the New Testament that ever leads you to believe the more children you have, the better standing you have in redemption. It's not true. In fact, when God told Adam that he would till the ground by the sweat of his brow and in sorrow, God ensured that Adam understood and his seed would understand there would always be farming and seed time and harvest, and it's going to be a laborious work. The cross didn't get rid of pain and childbearing. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ didn't get rid of sweat. And it certainly didn't get rid of the toil that goes into tilling the ground. But when we come back to this then, let me add a few more statements. So Adam and Eve's descendants shall be saved from sin and its effects, but having babies and gardening is not going to have anything to do with their redemption. It's not going to affect it at all. But Paul says in that final sentence in verse 15 that faith, love, and holiness. Well, then let's return to the whole situation about a woman teaching. Okay. Paul says this to Timothy if Timothy is in Ephesus. Are there other locations in the Bible where Paul talks about women teaching? Yes. Are there other places in the Bible where it talks about women teaching? Yes. Paul says in Titus that women should guide the house, teach the children. But do you know how many men there are that won't let their women run the economy of the house? They'll let them handle the kids. But they won't let them guide the economy of the house and everything that goes with the structure of that. So it says that women should teach the kids, but then Paul says in another place, let the older women instruct the younger women. That's what's supposed to happen. 
That's not what typically happens because most older people don't want to be involved with anything that puts them in a position of having to give instruction to younger people. Well, the Bible says that we're supposed to, and part of the reason we see some of the things we see in our churches today is because older people won't step up and be the examples God wants them to be. Yeah. And then also because we have younger people that are rebellious and won't pay attention when older people are trying to give them the instruction that they need. Who in the Bible, then, was a woman that counseled men? Deborah, in the book of Judges. Scripture says, Deborah sat under a tree, and all the men and elders of Israel came to her for wisdom, and she counseled them. That's what the Bible says about, about Deborah. There's another prophet, his name Huldah. When they found the scroll that had been lost for years and didn't know how they were supposed to live, they took that scroll to Holder. Holder interpreted that thing and told them to go back to the king, and here's what you tell the king about how he should govern this nation. She instructed men. No problem there. God never had a problem with that. Nathan, the prophet, sent Bathsheba, Solomon's wife, to counsel him, put his words in her mouth to counsel him to ensure that Solomon ended up on the throne rather than Adonijah. The king received the counsel from his wife when Adonijah was trying to take the, uh, the throne from him. In the Gospels, Anna the prophetess, Here's the lady that held Jesus in her arms and then went out into the streets and proclaimed and told people about the Messiah and the salvation that had come. She told men. She told women. Well, there's a lady in John 4 who had been married five times, shacking up with a man. Jesus had a conversation with her, and they had a conversation about religion. He was talking to her about Jewish worship. She was talking with him about Samaritan worship, and Jesus never got offended that she was offering instruction to him about what Samaritan worship was like. But he did let her know she needed to be saved. This, this woman wasn't even walking with God, and yet she knew more about her religion than some Christians know about theirs. And let's not forget in Acts chapter 18, verse 24, Aquila and Priscilla, it said that both of them, husband and wife, sat down with Apollo, a man mighty in Scripture and eloquent, and explained to him the way of God more perfectly. Here was a man who was good with the Word, but still could use a little teaching, and husband and wife together taught that man. And so my question when I think of Timothy, was here's a man had a mother, had a grandmother that were Christian. So you know they both taught him. They both taught him. So if a woman is not permitted to teach a man, then my question is, at what point does a male child need to reach before a mom can no longer teach him? So if, if, if you have a son, mothers, well, are you no longer allowed to talk to them about God when they turn five? Because there are some churches that once a kid becomes a Christian, if they're five, they take them out of the, the, the children's Sunday school and put them just with the men, some churches. 
is, is it when they're 13 that you can no longer talk to them about God and you have to just leave them directly with the Father? Is it when they're 20? You know as well as I do, every parent in here, every mom in here talks to their son about what they want to talk to him about regarding God whenever they want to talk to him about it. There's never a point in time where it stops. And God never intended these passages to be used in that way. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says that a woman in church, now we're talking about church, a woman in church should be able to pray and prophesy. Why in the world would he say that if he didn't think a woman could instruct people? 1 Corinthians 14 says that the gift of prophecy functions to provide exhortation, exhortation, uh, encouragement, and comfort, and provides instruction. If a woman gives an utterance, in tongues with interpretation, or gives a prophecy that's instructive. Paul is not contradicting himself. The problems with the church in Galatia were specific to Galatia, not Colossae. The problem with the church in Colossae was not for the church in Philippi. And what Paul is dealing with with Timothy is specific to what Timothy has to deal with in Ephesus. Otherwise, why would Joel have the prophecy that says in the last days your sons and daughters will prophesy. Upon my servants and handmaidens would he speak. he speak through them. I had a lady one time who was really getting on to me about this whole First Timothy 2 thing. And so I was talking to her about it. And I was asking this question as an irritator. I knew I was annoying her, but this this little question was like, um, well, was Eve allowed to talk to Adam? You know, because if if a, if you don't suffer a woman to teach, was Adam even allowed to listen to his wife? Well, you know, she she said she didn't know, and so we we got to talk. She said, I just don't believe that a woman ought to do anything in church that has to do with the Bible. I don't know what it is about this thing here, but if you put this in front of a lady, then people get offended. Not as though they had these in the ancient church anyhow. People met in houses. So a pulpit was, didn't even exist in a church setting in a house, but there's something about that. If you take that away, then, then a lady can talk. But this, this older lady was telling me, I just don't believe a woman ought to be allowed to stand up in church and talk. And even if she talks, it should never be from the pulpit. It should be from a lectern off to the side and never be allowed in a place that's just for a guy. And so she's telling me this, and I said, why do you believe that? She said, because the Bible says a woman ought not be allowed to teach in church. I said, okay. I said, well, let me ask you something. How big does the church need to be in order to constitute a church? She said, the Bible says where two or three are gathered in my name, Jesus is in the midst. So she said, if you've got at least two people, you can have a church. I said, I want to make sure I understand you. So if you've got two people, that constitutes a church. And if you have a church, then a woman should not be giving instruction to a man about the Bible. She said, that's exactly what I'm saying. I said, well, there's two of us here. And you're a lady. And you've been teaching me for 30 minutes about First Timothy 2. Oh, well, that, that's different. See, she's the exception. She's the exception. I don't think 
that anybody that's in a pool or in a river or in a lake or in an ocean is drowning cares what the gender of the person is that throws them something that's going to save their life. You understand? It, it wouldn't matter to me if it was a nine-year-old girl or a 90-year-old woman up here telling me about Jesus if it's going to help me live for God. I want to hear it. And I've told some of our lady ministers, because I've helped support many of them through the years that I've been out here, I said, look, if anybody comes to you and says you're out of order because you're usurping the authority of a man, I said, then you just tell them, well, Pastor Darrell's my covering. I said, that settled that. Paul says, and Peter says, that a wife should be in subjection unto her own husband. My wife is not under subjection to every man in here. And your wife is not in subjection to every man on planet Earth. Your wife has a relationship with you. That's it. That's where it stops. And, and this idea that you are, you're usurping the authority of a guy anytime you step into a room where a guy is. So if a lady is teaching a lady's Bible study and a man comes through the door, she's got to stop teaching. That's foolishness. That's absolute foolishness. Jesus is the head of the church, and if two or three are present and he is there, he's the head of that woman and she is teaching in that meeting. He's the head. Okay, all right, so we'll stop there. The last thing about all this I'll say is the book of Hebrews tells us that we now have a better high priest, a better covenant. We have better sacrifice, a better tabernacle, better blood that's been offered. So that means we have it better than what they had under the old covenant. But if you try to take those words literally, then you'll remove from ladies liberties they had under the old covenant and bring them into a bondage in the New Covenant, are you trying to tell me that the New Covenant got better only for men, but not for women? I mean, God let them preach in the Old Covenant. Why wouldn't you want them to preach now? Nobody had a problem with the ladies telling the men that were hiding that Jesus was alive again and he was raised from the dead. All right, so let's have a word of prayer, and if we've got anything else to talk about, we will. Father, thank you that we can look through your word tonight and see some things that were quite important. We pray that uh, you give us a few things to chew on, but more than anything else, help us to appreciate how wonderful our redemption is. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen, amen.